You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Back to their seats. Feel free to grab a last pastry or coffee. Grab an Esther scripture journal if you want one or a hardback black Bible on your way back. Feel free to grab those. We're going to be in Esther chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Esther chapter 3. In those pew Bibles, we're on page 411. So if you're using one of those, feel free. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So feel free to take that home with you and use that. Esther 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15 today. Our family really enjoys audiobooks. Does anybody here enjoy a good audiobook? Okay, yeah, good, a lot of people. We enjoy reading books out loud together, and one of the things we're trying to do is develop kind of a family culture around books. And sometimes my family will start a book without me, and they'll get going into it. And then we'll get into the car, and they'll turn on the audiobook, and then I'm lost. And I'm having to ask Megan, like, who are these characters, and what's going on with this plot? And eventually, you know, I'll catch up. I'll start to figure out what's going on, but it takes some time. And the Bible can be a bit like that sometimes, especially when you start in the middle. It's a story that has a storyline to it. And if you're missing maybe some of the characters, some of the storylines, it can be hard at times. Now, that's not to say that you can't read somewhere in the Bible and understand it. God's Spirit wants to help us. God wants us to know him through his scriptures. And so he's going to help us, even if we don't know all of the plot line, The first time we read it, God's spirit can make it alive to us. And yet I have found that over time, as I read it more and more, as I understand it more and more, it becomes deeper and richer. And that's one of the beautiful things about the scriptures is that you can read it for the first time and your life can be changed. And you can read it over and over again for the rest of your life and continue to be changed. And we're here in this series in Esther. And we thought before we jumped in today, we'd zoom out a little bit and help connect some of the storylines, some of the characters and the plot lines for us together as a church. So I'll just begin at the beginning. The first book of the Bible is Genesis, and in it, God creates the world good and beautiful. And Adam and Eve, they fall into temptation. They're deceived by the serpent, and sin enters the world as they eat from the forbidden fruit. The result is that it fractures a relationship both with God and one another. And there we see the dual conflict throughout the rest of the story both the fractured relationship vertically with God and horizontally with one another. We see the consequence of that even in the very next generation as Adam and Eve's sons get into a fight. Cain kills his brother Abel. And then in Genesis 12, we see God starting to do something about this problem when he calls Abraham from among all the peoples of the world to be a father of a nation that would become a blessing to the nations. And through him and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, the people of Israel, would come into existence, God's people, through whom he would set out to repair his relationship with humanity and humanity's relationship with one another. But of course, no good story is not without its challenges, and that happens throughout the scriptures. We see the challenges and difficulties. Abraham's offspring end up in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. They're oppressed and enslaved, and, God, or, and they cry out to God for help. And God rescues them and delivers them through a man named Moses. And as Moses leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, God makes a covenant with his people. He gives them instructions about how to redeem what's been broken. And in particular, we see in the law then how we are meant to live in worship of God and in right relationship with one another. 
And they, along the way, encountered several other tribes and people groups who were brutal to one another and to the Israelites. They worshipped other gods, were unjust to one another, expressed at times in this egregious practice of child sacrifice even. One example were the Amalekites. It says in Deuteronomy 25 that they attacked Israel from behind. Not from the front, but from behind. When Israel was faint and weary, the Amalekites cut off those who were lagging behind. Women, children, injured, ill. These sorts of brutal actions toward others is an expression of the sin of humanity. Eventually, God brought his people into the promised land, built a prosperous and equitable nation. The people wanted a king. The first king of Israel was named Saul. And it's important to remember that name because Esther and Mordecai in our story are descendants of the same family as Saul. The second king was David and then Solomon, his son. And God promised David something similar to he did to Abraham, that through his offspring, one of them would come who would fully and finally redeem what had been broken, who would repair our relationship with God and with one another. It wasn't going to be David. It was not going to be his son, Solomon. One day it would happen, though. After them, then significant decline set in among God's people. They worshiped foreign gods. They were brutal to one another and even practiced child sacrifice themselves at times. Rather than becoming a blessing to the nations, they became like the nations around them. Over and over, God warned them to renew the covenant, to live in agreement with God's design. And they would go through a brief period of reform sometimes, but then they would be plunged back into even worse rebellion. And this went on for generations. And God was patient with them, calling them back to himself. But eventually they were conquered, taken from their homes, and brought into exile by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were eventually conquered by the Persians. And after about 70 years of exile, a group of Israelites returned home under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. And the book of Esther is taking place about 80 years after that first group of Israelites returned to Jerusalem. Esther and Mordecai and their families, they did not go with these initial families who returned, but they chose to stay in Persia. And so here we find ourselves in the story. God's people are still under the rule of the Persians. Some have returned home to Jerusalem. Others have stayed in Persia. But more significantly, God's people still feel the consequences of that first sin in the garden. There's still broken relationship with God and broken relationship with one another. They're still waiting for the time that God is going to fully and finally redeem the situation to fulfill the promise that he made to Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, that one day one of their offspring would redeem Israel, crush the serpent, and repair our relationship with God and one another. And so into that tension, we enter the story. Over the last two weeks, we've met most of the main characters of the story. There's an excessive king who is at times weak, easily influenced, and impulsive. We met a young woman named Esther, who is beautiful and wise, as well as her guardian, who is also her cousin, named Mordecai, who is strong and shrewd in his dealings. And now this week, we're going to meet the final main character of the story. And so before we begin in verse 1 of chapter 3, let me just pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. So Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. We thank you that when we read it, your spirit makes it come alive. What a gift. We thank you that we know the end of this story that we were just recounting, that you do fully and finally redeem in Jesus. And we look forward to that future day when that is fully complete. 
And so now, as we seek to understand what it means to be your people right here in this age, right now, would you help us by the power of your word? Would your spirit open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things that are found here in these scriptures? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther chapter 3, verse 1, says that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, after these things is a literary device that is used to introduce the next part of the story. It is also here a reference to what happened just before this at the end of chapter 2, where there was a plot to kill the king that Mordecai helped to uncover. And out of fear and paranoia, Ahasuerus appoints Haman to consolidate power beneath him so that fewer people were around to be able to threaten his life. And it also tells us, and this is important, that Haman is an Agagite, which is another name for the Amalekites that attacked Israel in the wilderness. So keep this in mind as we continue. We're going to get drawn back into this ancient feud that is now being played out in a foreign land. So picking up in verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, in this story of Esther, the conflict that will will be the focus of the rest of the story has now emerged. Everything up to this point has led to this primary plot line. Haman is seeking to destroy all of the Jews. And all the pieces are in place. Esther is queen, but no one knows that she's a Jew yet. Mordecai is a court official who is now expressing civil disobedience to Haman. And Haman wants to destroy all the Jews within the Persian kingdom. And the reason that Mordecai gives for not bowing is in verse 4, that he is a Jew. And we ask ourselves, what about his Jewish identity now keeps him from bowing to Haman? When up to this point, Mordecai had worked in and through the Persian government, at times paying homage was just simply deference and respect to those in authority, but also it could have connotations of worship. And so we might ask, did Mordecai have concerns about worship? Is that why he didn't bow? And that's possible, but there's no indication that he stops bowing to the king. And in fact, at the end of the story, he becomes the second in command, which means he's probably still doing it. So that can't possibly be it entirely. It seems more likely that Haman here, his reputation, his lust for power, the wickedness of the Amalekites... Haman being made head of the government represented a wickedness and dishonor to God that Mordecai could not support. Haman symbolized all that is wicked in the world. False worship of idols, reprehensible acts toward other humans. He was the embodiment of the evil that had ruined God's good creation over and over again. And in a very real way, 
He represents here the serpent in the garden, the Amalekites in the wilderness, the same wickedness that led led God's people into exile. And throughout this series, we've been talking about life in exile as a good analogy for us as followers of Jesus in this post-Christian Western world we live. And like Esther and Mordecai, in agreement with the command of God and Jeremiah to seek the good of the city, we will work in and through imperfect governments and human institutions for the good of human flourishing. But there will be times when the actions of individuals or institutions have become so contrary to God's design that like Mordecai does here, we will need to exhibit some form of civil disobedience. Now, those times are not easily discerned. We must have the courage to act, especially when there is such an egregious violation of our worship of God or the good of our fellow human. That is why being a Jew here for Mordecai leads him to defy the order to bow to Haman. In response, Haman is angry and wants to destroy all the Jews. And so now let's see how he plans to go about this. In verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And so what they're doing here is they're casting lots, which is the same as we might think of as, as rolling dice to try and determine which month and which day they would set for the execution of all the Jews. In verse 8, it says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And so here Haman appeals to the king's paranoia. His fear that another assassination attempt or disruption to his kingdom would come about. And this is a classic example of starting with a truth that ends in a lie. They did have unique laws relative to other people, but they were not a threat to the king in the way that Haman suggests. But the king is too paranoid and too weak to actually understand what's going on. And so he gets manipulated into agreeing to their massacre. Verse 9, it says, If it please the king, let it be decreed, that they, be, that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, to the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. In order to further convince the king to approve of the Jews' destruction, Haman gives another motivation, money. He agrees to pay the 10,000 talents of silver. As it says also at the end of verse 13, which we'll get to in a little bit, they would eventually plunder the goods of the Jews when they executed them. That was the plan. They were going to get some money. The king was fighting a costly war with the Greeks at this time and may have liked the idea of filling his treasury with money. And what we see is an interesting reversal of historic feuds. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, Israel's first king, and again from the family of Esther and Mordecai, was told by God to fully and finally defeat the Amalekites, who had done such terrible things to God's people. But God said, do not plunder their goods or let any of them live. And Saul did not listen. He let his men plunder their goods 
and he let their king Agag live. And now, generations later, Agag's descendant, who wants to kill and plunder God's people, is doing so in response to someone in Saul's family line. The first readers of Esther, they would have picked up on the irony of this story, that God is finally going to overcome this ancient enemy. But even more significant than the ancient feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites, the ancient consequences of the garden are also here at work. The motivations that Haman gives to the king for the destruction of the Jews are common to people throughout history. Because of our broken relationship with God and our broken relationship with one another, the result is that throughout history, people have continually oppressed each other, attacked each other, abused and destroyed one another. And the motivations have nearly always been the same. Money, power, and comfort. And Haman here offers the king money. He appeals to his paranoia, suggesting the Jewish people might threaten his power. And money and power lead to comfort that, when threatened, becomes a powerful motivator to squash anything or anyone that want to disrupt my way of life. And we have seen this throughout history. We might think of Hitler's Germany or Mao's China or dozens of other relevant examples in which wicked people appealed to sinful human nature to turn entire nations or peoples against others. But we also must reckon with the fact that it didn't just happen in other countries throughout history. It happened here with the same motivations led to our collective violation of God's design as a nation. We failed to worship God rightly, and we failed to live in right relationship with one another. In our nation... Slavery started in August 1619, when the first African slaves reached the shores of Jamestown, Virginia. And beginning in 1619, slavery existed legally until 1863. For 247 years, we lived with the sanctioned bullying, buying, selling, trafficking of other human people, primarily for financial gain. One of the primary motivations was money, the same as it was for Haman and Ahasuerus here. In the American colonies, slavery was big business. The financial benefit of free labor is hard to fully comprehend or calculate. But some estimate that at the time of the Civil War, enslaved persons in the United States were worth a combined $4 billion, more valuable than the nation's banks, factories, agricultural industry, and railroads combined. The undoing of slavery was going to have a massive impact on people's money, power, and way of life. And nothing will cause people to dehumanize and brutalize another person than money, power, or comfort. On the heels of slavery, we had black codes and Jim Crow laws, and the dehumanization of other people throughout history has led to some of the most horrific acts ever committed, and that's true in our nation as well. In 1918, over 50 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, just a little over 100 years ago, Hayes, Mary, and Baby Turner were the recipients of this type of violation to their humanity. And the story is so wicked that I, re- I cannot tell the entire thing here from the pulpit. I've wrestled how much should I even share. I read it this past week and couldn't even finish it. But I will say this. Due to their association with someone who is allegedly guilty of a crime, and catch that, they had not committed any crime. They had dark skin and they were friends with someone who was accused of a crime. Because of that accusation, they were brutally murdered. Mary was eight months pregnant, hung upside down, burned, and so much more. And I asked myself, 
what could lead someone to do this to another human? And here is, we must all admit to ourselves, the love of money, power, and comfort is inside of us all. Now, it will lead us to commit all sorts of small and large sins toward one another. Maybe not as egregious. It's significant for us to recognize there's a difference between the potential for evil and the cultivation of evil in someone's heart. And we should not shy away. Even as we admit to ourselves our propensity, we should not shy away from calling evil evil when we see it around us. The men who brutally murdered Hayes, Mary, and Baby Turner were evil. Hitler, Stalin, and Mao had evil in their hearts. Haman in this story intended wicked evil toward God's people. And we can say that what Hamas did to Israel just eight days ago is evil. And that does not negate the complicated relationship between Israel and Palestine for the past 75 years. As people in exile, we must have eyes to see when this type of evil is being cultivated in the hearts of people around us or in our hearts. We must have eyes to see when actions are done that reduce other image bearers of God to less than human. And this still happens in our country. It happens every day in the discourse around the actions of abortion as defenseless children's lives are ended and the lives of impoverished mothers are turned into political talking points. It still happens in areas of race, ethnicity, and religion as people are discriminated against because of creed or color. And today, as followers of Jesus, our lives are meant to be a reflection of God's design for the world. And that includes our worship of God as much as it does the dignity of our neighbors. And now picking up the story in verse 12, we see the king's response. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces and the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by, by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. <clears throat> the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. I think we should take a brief pause even to consider the gravity of what we just read. It can be easy to just read through the Bible, miss the humanity, the severity, the cruelty of what's being written. The king here gets the engine of his national postal service to work for the aim of one purpose, the eradication of every Jew living in his kingdom. And then perhaps in the most alarming thing in the entire story, Haman and the king, they just sit down to drink in celebration of what they had done. How cold and calculating the evil was in their hearts. And we see there the contrast then that the author wants to make. Susa 
is in confusion, which is so often the case in response to wicked legislation, when it does not lead to flourishing, but actually to confusion among people. And at this point in the story, we might be left feeling helpless. What can God's people possibly do? The king and his second in command, they have colluded to destroy all the Jews. And these sorts of stories of powerful people colluding with others to maintain the status quo out of motivation for money, power, and comfort, they're all over. You could read them everywhere. I heard one recently about a large realty agency here in the Twin Cities who watches for houses to sit on the market for an extended period of time. And once the homeowner and the small market realtor become vulnerable, they begin making negative reviews on public sites, further depressing the value of those homes and the opportunity to sell them. And then they use their deep pockets to make a low offer in an attempt to take advantage of the helpless seller so they can buy the house and turn it around for a quick profit. And when you read stories like that, you wonder, what can we do? In a world God manned, when wicked people do wicked things, we can feel helpless. We can feel hopeless. But one of the things we see in this text is that in reality, we are not. Even if every smaller storyline is not resolved in the way we want immediately, we can trust that God will ultimately resolve every storyline in Jesus. As Sam Wise says at the end of Lord of the Rings, God will make all sad things come untrue. And our passage hints at this reality. And once again, this is something that a knowledgeable Jew would have picked up on. So I want to point this out for us. The date that is set for the massacre is, list, or is mentioned in verse 13, the 13th day of the 12th month. Now, Haman and his associates, they had cast lots for this date. They had rolled dice, and through their own superstitious religion, they thought the dice would give them the luckiest day to kill the Jews. But what he did not know is that the God of the Jews is the God of creation. And this day is the first day of the Jewish Passover feast, their celebration of the time that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was a pinnacle moment for them where they saw God's faithfulness to them as a people. Now at the first Passover, God's people were to put the blood of a lamb without blemish over their doorpost. And on the designated night, God would bring his final judgment on Egypt through the death of their firstborn sons. And God's angel of judgment would pass over all of God's people who had put the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorpost. So any Jew who knew this date, they would have seen this date and they would have been reminded of God's past faithfulness and encouraged that their God was going to once again redeem his people from the consequences of the fall. Now, fast forward about five centuries from the story of Esther and Jesus is celebrating the Passover feast, the same feast with his disciples. And rather than an unblemished lamb becoming a temporary sacrifice, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is about to become the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb who would permanently defeat Satan, sin, and death. What started in the garden, a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with one another would fully and finally start to be repaired. The destruction in the garden was about to be undone through the sacrifice of the son. Throughout his life and his ministry, Jesus displayed a perfect relationship with the Father. Where Adam and Eve were disobedient to God in the first garden, Jesus also prayed in a garden and in perfect obedience to the Father, he became a sacrifice for us. Jesus also lived in perfect relationship with those around him. 
where Adam and Eve hid from one another. Cain killed his brother. Where God's people violated one another's rights over and over again. Jesus became the perfect love for his enemy. He humbled himself before outcasts. He welcomed sinners and he healed the sick. And on the cross, rather than scream condemnation, he prayed for the forgiveness of his oppressors. Jesus is the example of humility for all those with power. And he is the expression of forgiveness for all those who have been wronged. Here is the reality of the broken relationships in the world. They will never be overcome apart from the reconciliation that God has offered. He is the only hope for the world. The only way we get it is through right relationship with God through Jesus. And through right relationship with God, we will live in right relationship with one another. There is no other strategy that can solve the dilemma that humanity has lived under for centuries. Because there is no one or nothing strong enough to hold in tension all the wrongs that we've committed against one another. There is no one who can liberate the oppressed to forgive their enemy. And at the same time has displayed the radical humility that is required from those with power and influence to reconcile and repent, to live for the good of those around them. No human agenda can undo what was done in the garden. We need a divine response for a problem that runs this deep. And through his wounds on the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice that heals. And here's the reality for us. The ancient enemy that keeps humans at discord with one another is not the color of our skin. It is not the name of a people group. It is not the Amalekites or the Israelites. It is not a political party or a social ideology. It runs much deeper. The ancient enemy started in the garden. It is not another human. It is sin and Satan. We do not fight against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against the principalities and the authorities of the heavenly realm. And by the blood of Jesus, God has secured the victory. He is bringing in all the ancient storylines of human conflict into resolution through the blood of Christ. Now, it may not always happen the way we want. It may not happen as quickly as we want. We might be left in times of fear and helplessness, like the Jews must have felt at least a little as the couriers spread this execution message throughout the Persian Empire. But we can always trust that one day God is going to set all things right And together, we can work to bring into reality the reconciled relationships God has already given us in the kingdom, right here, right now. And so, River City Church, let's be agents of relational peace and reconciliation in this exilic age. That is how we live as followers of Jesus in our post-Christian world. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.